Gina Della from Pella. Get up to five years no interest, five months no first payment, and 5% same-day order savings at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 555's been extended, but only through October 31st. See PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Mike Spaulding, I have some good news and some bad news for you. I'll take the... No, you want the good news first. That's what I was going to say. Okay, I'm a positive the, the, the guy. good news is, over the course of the next three hours, we are going to be giving people an opportunity to win a pair of tickets to Game 1 of the National League Division Series at American Family Field this Friday. And, and just as a note, my program from noon until 3 is going to be originating from American Family Field, and we're reaching out to the Brewers. We're trying to create an, an opening day in October vibe and, and recreate perhaps a lot of the fun stuff that we typically do on opening day, and we're working on getting a great guest list put together. But And, and so everybody wants to be there. So here's the deal. Um, during my program, we're going to give somebody a chance to qualify to win that that's the good news so what's going to happen is sometime between now and three o'clock i'm going to invite callers and then what we're going to do is we're going to play a famous highlight from brewers postseason history and then if the caller has the right answer to what the question is then they're a qualifier and we're going to be qualifying people on each of our various shows today and then one of those qualifiers will be drawn as as the winner um, on wisconsin's morning news tomorrow so that's cool it's all very exciting that's all the good news right all right. The bad news is you're not eligible. I'm not, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really am. But now maybe, you know, if, if you wanted to, like, go on your cell phone or something and go out in the parking lot and make a call, and <laughs> this is Mike from West Dallas or something, you know, and disguise, disguise your voice. But, but you know, it, it's, it, it's got to be for, you know, one of our fans and stuff, unfortunately. So I, I apologize. It's for something that's really, really cool, but I, I, I can't give it to you. So I will admit that's okay because I did have a hand in picking out some of the highlights. So, <laughs> so you know the answer that there. was my contribution. Yes, I got it. I understand. So, but that, but that is legitimate. Everybody except you and me, and, and I guess other employees at Good Karma cannot participate in this. But sometime between now and three, we're going to be giving you an opportunity to qualify for a chance to win a, a pair of tickets. And I think there, I think I, I have to count up how many shows we're doing this on five or six qualifiers. So if you qualify on my program, you've got. You know, a decent, a pretty decent chance to get that pair of tickets to Friday's game. Um, if you are going to Friday's game, regardless of whether you win a pair of tickets or not, like I say, stop by our mobile broadcast facility. I will be out there right in front of American Family Field from noon until three. And if you can't get out there on Friday, well, I mean, tune in all day because a uh, very, very big deal. And we're all excited about Brew October. And the, I, I tell you, I, I look at this and, I think the Brewers have as good a chance as any team to advance to the World Series and maybe win the World Series. The Brewers have never won the World Series, and I remember I remember attending the World Series games in 1982 when the Brewers were in the American League and ended up losing in seven games to the St. Louis Cardinals. I remember going to the qualifying games. I remember going to the World Series games and the American League Championship Series games. Great memories, and uh, I, I hope we have a chance to do it again in 2021. All right, so 
keep tuned for your chance to win um, at least an opportunity to be one of our qualifiers for a chance to win two tickets to the Friday ball game. All right. Let, let me go through a couple of the stories that caught my attention in the news today, and then I'll tell you what I want to discuss with you. Headline in the Journal Sentinel, a pedestrian was struck and killed in West Dallas by a driver fleeing a traffic stop for reckless driving. Police pursuit that began early Wednesday, this would be about 1.10 a.m. this morning, in West Dallas came to an abrupt end in Milwaukee when the suspect's vehicle struck and killed a pedestrian. The incident started around 1.10 in the morning. West Dallas police tried to pull over a driver in the 1900 block of 80th Street for reckless driving. All right, so what happens nowadays in Milwaukee? When, when the cops try to pull you over, the, the standard thing, you don't pull over, you just take off and run. The driver fled the stop, drove east into Milwaukee, blowing through stop signs. The vehicle struck a pedestrian, a 34-year-old Milwaukee man, on South 21st Street and West National Avenue. So, I mean, this this pursuit goes approximately 60 blocks. Officers then end the pursuit to assist the injured man um, who ends up, he, he's dead as a result of this, and the slime bag driving the car, he is at large. So they, they did not apprehend him. So you've got that story. Then you have Wauwatosa police. Um, the, we've got another story about like a chase scene that's out there. Let's see. Three juveniles, okay, three juveniles inside a stolen minivan were arrested when that vehicle crashed into another car near 11th and Madison. Tuesday evening, police said around 6.30 p.m., the driver of the minivan, who police are looking for, so the driver has escaped, blows a stop sign, strikes the sedan. The driver flees before officers arrive. Three juvenile passengers were arrested. The driver of the sedan did not. Um, report any injuries. The car was stolen. So here you have a bunch of punk kids driving a stolen car, blow through a stop sign, slam into a sedan. Well, you will remember a couple months ago, June 15th, where you had a situation where you had a, a crash that killed a 16-year-old and injured five others. The dash cam of that had been released. What happens is officers try to pull over a silver Kia on North 99th Street and Mariner Street. The Kia was stolen. The driver of the vehicle, who I believe was 16, takes off five other kids in the stolen car. And what they do, if you will remember, they cross over and in on Good Hope Road, up speeds over 90 miles an hour. The driver performs multiple illegal U-turns along the way and ultimately slams head-on into ongoing traffic, and the 16-year-old driver of the car dies. Two 12-year-old passengers who were seriously injured, um, three teens um, that were in the infinity that was hit were all seriously injured. So again, you've got another one of these stories about multiple cases, either stolen vehicles or just people driving recklessly, high rates of speed. Instead of pulling over, they decide to flee and you have people dying as a result of it, whether it's pedestrians being struck or the fleeing car loses control, drives the wrong way down a major thoroughfare like Good Hope Road, hits another car and they're dead. All right. So this is now 
what what passes for standard behavior in the mean streets of Milwaukee. That the standard behavior is you do not pull over for the cops, you run. You drive even more recklessly than you were before. You don't care what happens to the people in your car. You don't care what happens to people in other cars. It is this giant game, and people are dying as a result of it. Got an email from somebody who said, Jeff, you, you talk about the reckless driving stuff, and I know where you're coming from, but here is my question to you. Are we making it worse by the police chasing, given the fact that we now know that the people who are out there driving the stolen cars, driving recklessly, we, we have a pretty good indication that they're going to run. And at least in a lot of cases, when they run, bad, bad things happen, sometimes to the people that run, but oftentimes to innocent people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when some 16-year-old or 15-year-old punk driving the stolen car decides to, I don't know, drive the wrong way down Good Hope Road or loses control after a 60-block chase and slams into a pedestrian. So the, the texter, emailer, was saying, okay, do we need to rethink the idea of chases, given the fact that people are just going to flat out run? And we know that. And that oftentimes there's no consequence for them running. Should we just let them go? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we make things worse by chasing to try to... I don't know, catch the people who are driving recklessly in the stolen cars, or should we just let them go because by trying to catch them, we know we are endangering people. 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I say chase, but there's an asterisk that comes along with it. I'll explain that asterisk, but what do you think? 855-616-1620. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're just tuning in, yet another one of these stories. Last night, you have somebody driving recklessly in West Dallas. The cops try to pull him over. The person takes off. We don't know who it is. My guess is it's probably a juvenile in a stolen car, but we don't know exactly because they haven't been caught. They take off. They lead the police on a 60-some block high-speed chase. Um at some point in time, they hit and kill a pedestrian who's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The police then break off the chase. Bad guy gets away. They're looking for him. Maybe they'll catch him. Maybe they won't. When they catch him, my guess is we're going to find it's not the person's first time at the rodeo. But the question becomes, given the fact that this is now the default position in the mean streets of Milwaukee, whenever the cops try to pull somebody over, there's a better than even chance that they're going to flee. Right? Should we just not chase? Because when they flee, they endanger the public. My answer is, you, you still got a chase. I have a but with that, that something else that needs to happen. But, all right, is this a justification for letting people drive off? Tim in Waukesha. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, all I would say is there has to be consequences for those acts. Uh, actions and, and being former law enforcement, if you think you're going to get away with it, you let it go. But most of the departments nowadays have a stop on a chase. I mean, they call off a chase. Some don't even start a chase. So I, I don't know necessarily what those parameters are these days, but that was always in place to stop a chase. But if there's no consequences to those actions, mm-hmm. and of course you see what happens in Chicago with a gunfight, which is not what you're talking about where you see it live on TV and nobody was charged, Yeah, you know? So at what point do we decide as a society to 
stop and enforce these laws. Well, see, you so know, th- I, that, yeah. No, I'm with you, Tim. Thank, see, that, that that's you're, you're kind of touching on what my asterisk is. It, yes, you need to chase, at least in my opinion. Now, I, I appreciate what you're saying. There are there are times where you have to make that call to, to pull off the chase. Okay, it's down. I don't know. You've got somebody that's driving 95 miles an hour at 3.30 in the afternoon through a school zone. Okay, maybe in that case you have to make that decision. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it's unfortunate that the pedestrian was on the roadway. But if we want to belo- blame somebody, we're blame. Let's put the blame where it belongs, which is in in the crazy criminal who is fleeing with no regard for life. I mean, that's who's responsible. It's not the cops that are responsible for the death. I think you have to chase. And as a number of you are making the point in the texts to me, yes, for for years, Milwaukee essentially, the city of Milwaukee went for about five years thanks to the mayor and the former police chief who cooked up this hair brained idea that the cops weren't supposed to chase and that just further emboldened everybody everybody knew then that you know without uh, unless the police have essentially probable cause to believe that you got a body in a trunk they weren't going to let you they weren't going to chase you and so you had people just driving here we're going to run the red lights the cops are going to pull us over we're just going to take off that was a disaster and a matter of fact i think we're still dealing with some of the consequences of that disaster you can't let now, six juveniles driving 85 miles an hour in a stolen car who then blow through a red light. The police try to pull them over. You can't just let them drive away because they're, they're not going to slow down. At some point in time, they're going to you know, blow through another red light and hit and kill you know, the, the husband, the wife, and the two kids, you're coming back from dinner. That's just the reality of this. And there's always a risk that goes with chasing, and I appreciate that, but you can't let people get away. Now, so you say to me, okay, Jeff, you said there's an asterisk. Well, what's the asterisk? Well, it, it's yes, you have to chase. And I know I sound like a broken record on this, but there also have to be consequences when you catch people. It is time to wake up the sleeping juvenile justice system and the sleeping criminal justice system and say, all right, if somebody runs from the police at 85 miles an hour, when they catch them, they're going to prison for five years. If you're driving a stolen car and it's the fourth time and you're a juvenile and you try to flee from the cops at 80 miles an hour, we're going to wave you into adult court and we're going to send you to prison for five years. Yeah, you, you, you can't. Part of the frustration is, and I know if you talk to line cops, they'll tell you this. Part of the frustration is you, you chase these people, you catch them. They're driving the stolen car. They're doing 90 miles an hour and they're back out on the street, released to their parents six hours later. And that, that's the ongoing frustration. So So, yes, you have to chase, in my opinion. You can't let criminals just get away with it. But the flip side is you also have to hold them accountable. So when I see these, and I talk about this all the time, I know, when I see the mayor and I see these aldermen and stuff come out and denounce the senseless loss of life and the reckless driving, all those types of things that affect quality of life in the city, I understand. But then I also want to say, why aren't you using your bully pulpit to identify the bad guys, call out the juvenile justice uh, judges who are in juvenile court judges who aren't doing their jobs and protecting the general public. Why don't you ag- start to advocate for, I don't know, mandatory prison terms for people that are driving in this sort of reckless fashion? Let's get the bad guys off the street. But to start with, you do have to catch them, don't you? Let's talk to Terry on the south side. Terry, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Yeah, I'll make I'll be quick. So, uh, 
and as far as from what I see, the point of having police is to deter people from breaking the law and to enforce the law. So obviously, and I'm not saying it's the fault of the police, but obviously their presence isn't deterring a lot of those people from breaking the law. No, it's, it's actually encouraging it. The, the police put on the bubble lights, and that's the motivation to drive away at 95 miles an hour. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're not <laughs> right. going to stop. We're going to run. Sure. Right. But now if we stop them from enforcing it, which is chasing the people, then what is the point of having police? I, now, I think that we can use technology. Uh, I know in, in California all those years when they have, even today when they have police chases they bring out the helicopter Mm -hmm. why don't we do that why don't we have drones why don't we start some program with the police department where we use technology and have drones back off the police get the drone in the air follow these guys see where they're going and catch up with them there Mm -hmm. you know you don't have to chase them we can do something with the dmv and the car manufacturers these cars are electronic shut them down well i think you start start it yeah i mean i I guess no i understand now terry thanks for calling it's i I do think you raise an interesting point that there's probably more you can do with technology with regard to like GPS and stuff like that. And, and, and as far as catching people, but again, part of the problem is there, there's, there's an immediacy. You've got, okay, six kids, oldest one is 15, driving 85 miles an hour in a stolen car. You know, going through red lights. Well, you know, it, and it's, I understand. Let's get the helicopter up and let's watch them. Well, okay, that, you know, what, what happens if at the next intersection they're going 80 miles an hour, you know, before you can get the helicopter up or the drone up and they end up blowing through the light and, and that's where they hit and kill somebody. So I think, you know, there, there definitely, there are things that technology can do. I mean, keep in mind, we talk about the GPS stuff. Well, a lot of these cars are stolen. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like, okay, let's run the license plate. And, you know, it, it's just they're, they're stolen cars. There are people driving in an irresponsible fashion. And, and if, if there's technology out there that you can use to follow people more and make chases, quote unquote, safer, I'm all in favor of it. But the bottom line to me is you can't just let people drive away. And I wish the judges and the prosecutors and the politicians in this community and others would wake up to the fact that. The community is being terrorized by people who have the impulse control of fruit flies and no regard for human life. And and why do we have to wait till that kid who has stolen the sixth car, who's been involved in the fifth case, the fifth chase, finally hits and kills a 34-year-old man before we all say, okay, well, maybe we need to take this seriously. Because the truth is, the first time that punk ran away at 80 miles an hour, they could very easily have ended up hitting and killing somebody. We've got to wake up to what's going on. But the answer isn't, at least in my opinion, to simply say, okay, let's pull back and just watch the bad guys drive away and make obscene gestures at the cops. you got to get them off the streets. That starts with catching them. And then the next element is, okay, now that you've caught them, maybe we just don't want to send them back to mom and dad and tell them not to do it again. Maybe we want to send them to, let's see, where? Yes, jail or prison. Back with more in a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 
your Milwaukee Brewers are back in the postseason after winning the NL Central for the second time in four years. Our very own Mr. Baseball, Bob Buecher, calls Brew October right here on WTMJ. And if you live in southeast Wisconsin, you can also listen online on your phone and on Alexa. It's Brew October on WTMJ, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored by Boucher Automotive, Town Bank, a Trust Community Bank, and Delta Dental, Wisconsin's number one dental plan. Okay, hope I'm not giving away too many details or talking out of school. But as I've been saying, the, the Brewers playoff game, uh, first pitch Friday afternoon, 3.30. My program's going to be originating from American Family Field, our mobile broadcast facility, out in front of American Family Field from noon until 3. We are still in the process of lining up the guests in coordination with the Brewers. But we just talked about Bob Euchre. I am told that as scheduled, Bob Euchre is scheduled to, uh, scheduled to check in on the program. So I'm looking for, I always love that. You know, Bob and I have got a chance to talk to him pretty much every opening day for a long time. And so we're, we're, we're scheduled to have a chat among other luminaries with Mr. Baseball, Bob Euchre on Friday's special broadcast. So check that out. All right. Is it any wonder that our COVID, the response that people have to the medical community regarding COVID is so screwed up when the, the medical experts themselves can't reach agreement. And yet you have politicians in the chattering class who are, are making you know, statements and telling people what to do when it might be contrary to medical advice. You will remember when Joe Biden took office, he pledged to follow the science. Okay. Everybody's in favor of that. Follow the science. But the problem is, what what happens when scientists disagree and it's not clear what the science really shows? And, and that's, that's one of these issues. And yet you have a chattering class of politicians who've decided that, okay, this is what we're going to tell people to do, regardless of whether it's supported or not. Now, I have been a critic of Anthony Fauci, and we've talked about it over the last two days. I, I think he's overexposed. I think a lot of times he shoots from the hip and says things that, well, he, he really, he might mean them or he, doesn't he either doesn't mean them or he again is just a little too loose with things and and it creates it it creates again this vacuum of information and make people wonder does he know what he's talking about you had the latest example of this that happened over the weekend he goes on cbs's face the nation on sunday and he's asked a question where they say okay do you think um are we going to be back to normal? By, can people celebrate Christmas, or is it too soon to tell? And his response is, well, I think it's too soon to tell. And, and of course, that then creates this whole thing. Where, what do you mean? Is he not watching college football games where you've got 80,000 people together, and yet he's telling America that we, you might not be able to get together with your family? And, and people are shaking their heads and rolling their eyes. And by, by giving a response like that, it just, I think, kind of demonstrates how out of touch at least some people are with where mainstream America is. So I think what happened is people from the Biden administration kind of got to him Sunday afternoon and pretty much said, what the hell are you talking about? And so yesterday or Monday, he, he came back and immediately like backtracked from that. He said, well, I was I, I was I was misunderstood. Okay, well, how you can be misunderstood when you come out and say it's too soon to tell, I, I don't know. <laughs> but but he said, no, 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 I, there, there's not going to be any problem. I'm planning on celebrating Christmas as usual. And, and again, that 
it's fine, but the problem is that you send out these mixed messages, and this has been my problem with Dr. Fauci all along, that he's overexposed, he does every interview that comes down the pike, and he ends up saying things that are, are contradictory. He says something on Sunday, and then you know he says something different on, on Tuesday, and you start to wonder, for people who are a little bit skeptical about our response to COVID, they start to wonder, okay, well, what's what's really the truth? What What's going on here? Can we celebrate Christmas or, or not? And that's my, my advice, if Dr. Fauci were listening to me, would be maybe you don't need to do every newspaper interview and every radio interview and every TV interview. Maybe you just need to, I don't know, kind of dial that back a little bit. Maybe just dial it back a, a lot. So there's another example of this going on, and it has to do with booster shots. And if you are a new listener to this program, please understand, I, I'm not an anti-vaccine guy. I got vaccinated as soon as I possibly could. I, I'm not... I'm not anti-booster shot. I, I'm, I'm really not. I'm not eligible for a booster shot right now. But I, I, I guess I, as soon as I'm eligible and they're available, am I going to push my way to the front of the line? No, but I, I, I have no problem getting the booster shot. I guess I kind of figure it can't hurt. But there's a lot of controversy involving these booster shots. And the president, about a month ago, came out and said, Okay, everybody needs to get a booster shot. Essentially, you know, first, first of all, you know, we we, we want to anybody sixty and older, and then if you've got the, these health risks, et cetera, et cetera, and and ultimately we want to get booster shots. Well, the problem is Joe Biden got ahead of the, the science, and to the extent that he's still pushing booster shots for everybody, he's still way ahead of the science. And apparently what happened last week is there was a very, very tense meeting where you had a number of of members of a panel from the Center for Disease Control who, who came out and said, apparently it was a meeting with at the White House where they said, look, you, you guys are just wrong. The science that we're all supposed to be following doesn't support giving boosters to all adults. That that's just not where the science is. If you've got people that are in particular high risk groups, well, okay, yeah, then it makes sense. But otherwise, you know, all previously vaccinated adults, there, there's no basis to to do this. So that's what you know, several outside experts are, are saying that the current data doesn't support you know using boosters. Now again, I don't, I don't. Not against a booster shot, but we're right now fighting a battle to try to convince people to get vaccinated in the first place. There's a lot of people who are skeptical of the information that is coming out of the government for a variety of reasons. I'm not an anti-vaccine guy, but I appreciate that, you know, what we have to do is try to get more and more people to voluntarily sign up to get vaccinated. When you have now a huge chunk of the population that's still not vaccinated, and now you get ahead of the science, arguably, and you say, okay, well, we, we want the vaccinated people to continue to get boosters because the vaccinations might wear off. The, the, the big downside of that, especially absent a consensus in the medical community, the downside of that is a lot of people who aren't vaccinated in the first place are going to hear it and say, well, my gosh, do I, you know, if if this is the deal, if I get vaccinated and then they're telling me that I, I'm going to need a booster because the vaccination might wear off, you know, is what, what can I believe about the vaccinations and do I really need to do it? And again, I believe everybody should get vaccinated. But this is one of these examples where I think it's not the science it's it's the politics. The Biden administration is under a lot of pressure because after getting early 
good marks for dealing with the COVID situation, those that the public is starting to kind of turn and say, okay, you know, we're, we're still, we're still talking about masks. We've got, you know, the head of the, we've got Anthony Fauci saying, at least for a day, that we might not be able to get together at Christmas in 2021. You know, wh- what is going on here? And that's hurting the Biden administration. So now I think they're pushing, you know, more and more shots and that, that's, that's all well and good, but it's sowing distrust in the community, which is why I think it's so important if we're going to follow the science, we've got to be reasonably certain about what the science says before we come out and make these various edicts. And look, I, I have nothing against getting booster shots, but before we tell the American people that you need to have these booster shots, don't you think that the evidence should be clear on that? And don't we think that we should be able to point to a number of peer-tested scientific studies that justify it? Because if we don't, all we're doing is saying to those people who really don't necessarily trust the science that well, maybe the science doesn't understand COVID yet. All right, back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay. Here it is, Brewers fans. We have a pair of tickets to give away for Game 1 of the NLDS at American Family Field this Friday. Here is your chance to qualify. Call 855-616-1620. Here's the way this is going to work. We're going to take four callers, and then we're going to go in, in order. First caller, first caller gets it wrong, then we go to the second caller. We will play a famous highlight from Brewers postseason history. Then... We're going to ask you a multiple choice question. If you get it right, then you qualify. Like I say, we're going to be having, I think it's five or six qualifiers during the different day parts. Uh, and then on Wisconsin's Morning News tomorrow, we're going to take one of those qualifiers and we're going to draw their name. So you've got a decent chance. So this is the deal. We ask you a multiple choice question. If you get it right, you are the qualifier. If you don't get it right, then we go to the next caller. The winner, like I say, will be randomly selected from our qualifiers and will be announced on Wisconsin's Morning News Thursday morning. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. This is Brew October, presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored by Boucher Automotive, Town Bank, a Trust Community Bank, and Delta Dental, which is Wisconsin's number one dental plan. All right. So we've got our, you're set, all right. All right, so we're going to go to our first contestant. Put some pressure on the first contestant. First contestant is Georgia in South Milwaukee. Hi, Georgia. Hi. Okay, so we're going to play a highlight, and then I'm going to ask you a multiple choice question. If you get it right, you're the qualifier. If not, we go to somebody else. Okay, so you all ready? Ready? Ready. Okay, here's Ready. the okay, good no here. Okay, here's the here's the uh let's let's play our, our highlight here. Two two pitch, Grandon going away. Swing and a high drive, deep right center field. This ball is gone. Brandon Woodruff off of Clint Kershaw ties the game. What a piece. Okay, so that's a highlight. <clears throat> Brandon Woodruff. Brewers pitcher hit a home run off Clayton Kershaw in game one of the NLCS in 2018. All right. Here is the question. Right. Who was the last lefty hitting pitcher to hit a postseason home run? I'll give you four choices. 
last lefty-hitting pitcher to hit a postseason home run. A is Greg Maddox. B is Clayton Kershaw. C is Warren Spahn. D is Rick Sudcliffe. Greg Maddox, Clayton Kershaw, Warren Spahn, Rick Sudcliffe. Mm. <laughs> I, and, and don't, by the way, I'm not the one that draws up the questions. <laughs> I'm just the guy that reads them. So. Oh, okay. Maddox, uh, so don't, what, what kind of question is that? Maddox, Kershaw, Spahn, Sudcliffe, the last lefty hitting pitcher to hit a postseason home run. Uh, I'll go with Warren Spahn. You would go with Warren Spahn. That's a good guess. Unfortunately, Georgia, it is incorrect. I'm sorry, uh, but thanks for playing. Okay. All right. So let's go right, to. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Let's go to our next caller, which is who is Matt in Waterford. Matt, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay. So Brandon Woodruff hit a home run off Clayton Kershaw in Game One of the NLCS in 2018. Who was the last lefty hitting pitcher to hit a postseason home run? We know it's not Warren Spahn. So your choices are Greg Maddox, Clayton Kershaw, or Rick Sutcliffe. I'm going to go with Clayton Kershaw. Well, that's a good guess, Matt, but you're wrong as well. Ah. Okay, sorry. Okay, thanks. Let's talk to right, Scott thanks. in Scott in South Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. Okay. See, the, the odds, this is kind of narrowing down. All right. Brandon Woodruff hit a home run off of Clayton Kershaw in game one of the NLCS in 2018. Who was the last lefty hitting pitcher to hit a postseason home run? you got two choices. We're down to, well, I guess you could pick Kershaw or Spahn again, but that wouldn't make any sense because that's wrong. Greg Maddox, Rick Sutcliffe. Um, Rick Sutcliffe. Scott, you are a winner. <laughs> you, you, you are. Did you know that, or was that just just a guess? Um, I well, I d- did process of elimination because um um because um because the one I didn't select. Right. And it was a right-handed pitcher. Uh, very. He was a right-handed pitcher. I think he might have been a left-handed bat, but very good. You you got it. Doesn't matter how you got there. You are correct. So we're going to put you on hold, Rick. Um, Rick, I'm sorry. We're going to put you on hold, Scott. You are our qualifier, and I'm pulling for you to get your name drawn tomorrow morning on Wisconsin's Morning News, okay? I'll be listening in. Okay, thanks for playing. Right, let's put him on hold there. And, again, we're going to be other day parts. I know we're going to be doing similar contests with different sort of questions. I thought that was a I thought that was a tough question, as a matter of fact. I'm not sure... I'm not sure who I would have guessed for that one, but the answer is Rex Sutcliffe. And, um, again, I hope, hope he pulls this off. We're going to be having this contest throughout the course of the day. And, like I say, even if you're not able to score a free pair of tickets to this contest over the course of the day. Um, we, we hope if you're coming out to the ball game on Friday, you stop by. I'll be there from noon until 3. And if not, we're, we're going to bring you all the sounds and hopefully, if we're doing our job right, the sights and do a great job of describing the smells and all the different stuff going on as uh, Brew October rolls on the first playoff game. So um, Scott is our winner other day parts, you'll have a chance to qualify as well. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. So Mike Spaulding, in, in hosting a program, I... I, I wear many hats, and there's many different things that I try to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of those things is I, I like to 
occasionally sort of be the voice of, of the audience of the fans. And every once in a while, for example, you, you'll say something and, and everybody will say, that's what I exactly was thinking. And I'm glad to hear that guy on the radio you know, say that, that thing. And so, you know, that's a one way, the way we connect. Now, during the newscast, I, I was maybe three quarters listening to, to Jane's story about virtual stuff. Mm-hmm. And my, my reaction, maybe everybody else got it, but my reaction was, huh? Was it, explain that story to me. So it's this thing called the metaverse. Do you remember? The metaverse. Yeah. Do you remember games like um, The Sims where you got to like not live out your life necessarily, but live a life through somebody else, like characters that you create? Okay. Metaverse. But, yeah, Sims. It, All right. Yeah. Okay. This All is right. like the... 2021 version of that is my understanding i'm also coming at this uh from a noob as well i have no money invested in this i honestly money. never okay, heard of okay, it okay so all right so okay tell, tell me how this is supposed to to work so it's it's not real it's virtual it is virtual but people spend real money on this do you remember when the i uh, the nft <laughs> stuff came out the non-fungible tokens how people could buy a clip on youtube they could buy a clip yeah. on YouTube. They could buy a clip of this show right now for $50. And then the hope is you invest it, you yeah. hold on to it, and then eventually someone else will come along and say, and, and I give think. you more money, right? Correct. Okay. That's right. what this is sort of like from my understanding. It's just like a virtual way to live. Now, why would you spend your real money to buy a virtual, as Jane said in her story, Coca-Cola to carry around? I do not know. So you <laughs> – okay, well, 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 good. So you buy a virtual Coke. Which is a an imaginary thing. You buy a virtual can of Coke. It is yes. not a. It's not a. It's. I drink Diet Coke, so it, it's not like I've gone to the vending machine, put the dollar in, gotten the can of Diet Coke that I then bring back here and I sip during breaks. I. I'm, it's not that. It's a an imaginary slash virtual. Okay, you, we you you call it virtual, but it's an imaginary. Yes. It's a non-existent can of Coca Cola that somebody would buy. And could like carry it around on their phone or something like that. Yes, if I was in the marketing business for, we'll just stick with Coca Cola for right now. You could make a limited edition can of Coca Cola by partnering with something like ABC News. You know, whatever it is, you could do that and then hold on to it and say, "There's only one of these ABC News branded Coca Colas." Before playing this game, who who values it more, and then you sell it to them. I don't understand it either. Okay. No, I, I, right. I, I know you're not advocating it, so I, I was I was asking if we could explain it. So you you pay real money for a non-existent thing, correct? In the hopes that other people who want to pay money will then pay you more money. more money for this non-existent thing. Yes. Okay. Robin Williams, the late comic, had a great line. He described cocaine as being God's way of telling you that you got too much money. I, I, this is just my reaction to this story. If you if you want to go out and buy an imaginary slash virtual can of Diet Coke that does not exist, and you're going to spend real money on that, forget cocaine. That is God's way of telling you that you've got too <laughs> darn much money. Oh, okay, all right. Well, I, I appreciate you. I don't necessarily know clearing it up, but I, I, I guess I, I understand the concept here. I mean, but even, see, 
I, well, no, I guess I don't. I don't understand why anybody would do it. Uh, you and me both. I don't right. either. I mean, I, I know all sorts of people who who speculate on stuff, but but it's always like like real stuff. I I, I know somebody, for example, who will um, th- there'll be a, a a vineyard, say in in Napa, and um, they will buy in advance. They'll say, okay, well, I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to commit to buy three cases of your 2022 Pinot Noir. Now they haven't, you know, they haven't bottled the Pinot Noir yet. It, it's it ha- it's not going to be for the next year, but at least. So you're speculating that that's going to be a good year, and you're speculating that what you're paying for it, you're going to get a, a value for it. But at least you're at some point in time, you're going to be getting the, the Pinot Noir. In this particular situation, you ain't never going to be drinking imaginary Diet Coke. Exactly. So can I read you Facebook's explanation? Because, of course, they're the company behind this. They say, quote, the metaverse is a set of virtual spaces where you can create and explore. Okay, v- virtual means imaginary. <laughs> so let's, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, virtual is imaginary. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, let's you create and explore with other people who aren't in the same physical space as you. So their big investment in this is like virtual reality goggles that you can wear around you put them on i put them on if we're both in two different places we can then tap into an imaginary place whether that's downtown milwaukee or wherever it is and see one another it's basically just a high-tech zoom meeting is what i'm understanding out of this <laughs> have you ever read the book like ready player one or any of those type of i i i i, I, I know i haven't I, I know there's the movie i haven't seen the movie and stuff okay i i, I, I guess i i understand the concept to me it's Sort of like Bitcoin, it's one of these things of of a fool and his money being parted. That, that's just really easy. And I guess I'm I'm sorry, I'm not going to take that real dollar bill. If I want a diet coke, I'm going to walk to the vending machine, buy the real diet coke, and drink it, as opposed to investing in a fake diet coke with the hope that somebody else is going to want it more somewhere down the line. But that's just me. That's just me. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> as much as I did, you're I very welcome. No, I, I mean, no, but I'm, I'm listening to the story going, huh? <laughs> and so, now, even after your explanation, I'm still going, huh? But I, under, I understand at least what we're talking about. It's just kind of like, oh, people are really doing this. Okay, wonder how this one's going to turn out. No, I think I'll continue investing in the 401k and buy mutual funds and things like that. Hey, when we come back... A hospital is doing something. Some people think it is unethical. What do you think? I will explain. We will discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. And moving on from the metaverse and the virtual diet can of Diet Coke. <laughs> it's just, it's, I, you know, I, I, I understand that times change and stuff, but during the break, I was talking to a couple of my younger teammates here and I was saying, okay, this is, is this just, am I the dinosaur in a tar pit that doesn't get this? And I think pretty much up and down the line, it's like, no, you want to spend money for something that doesn't exist on the hope that somebody else will pay you more for this thing that doesn't exist somewhere down the road? Huh. Why would we do that? Beats me. All right. This is kind of a twist on the COVID story. Uh, it is going to become more common, though. All right. A Colorado-based health system. Okay. One of the big, it's the University of Colorado um, health system. So, I mean, think think a, a big health system here in, in Wisconsin. Imagine the big ones that we have. So, this is one of those big health systems in Colorado. What they have decided to do is they are going to deny organ transplants to people 
who are not vaccinated against coronavirus. So let's say that you you have kidney failure, for example, and you're on the, the kidney transplant list or, you know, you've, you've got a bad liver and you're on the liver transplant list and it's extremely competitive. You know, there's there's unfortunately, you know, there's a lot more people that need new kidneys than, than there are kidneys available. There's a lot more people that need new livers than there are livers available. So let's say you're on on one of the, those transplant lists. And there's all sorts of different criteria that they have for deciding who who gets them. And one of them, clearly, it's based on, you know, it's based on on health, because given the fact that let's take livers, for example, you know, given the fact that there's not enough to go around, what they're doing is they try to find people that have the greatest chance of of success. So, for example, if you're an 80-year-old heavy cigarette smoker with all sorts of other conditions, well, what they figure is, okay, maybe you're you're less likely, the liver transplant is less likely to work than with somebody who's a, a 35-year-old, otherwise completely healthy person who's never smoked another day in their, uh, smoked a day in their life. So, so maybe that other person goes to the head of the list. Well, what they've decided to do when it comes to COVID is they've said, if you're not vaccinated, if you don't have your shot, you, you don't get one, you know, period. You're, you're not even going to be considered for this. And it's not because you at present, like as of this day, it's not because you have anything going on in your body which would make you less likely to be a success if you get the transplant. It's based solely on the conclusion that if you're not vaccinated, you're more likely to get COVID and you're more likely to have an adverse reaction from COVID, despite the fact that the vast majority of people who get COVID, you know, recover from it. I mean, I'm vaccinated. I I had COVID last November, about a year ago. I, I had COVID. It was a mild case. Thank you. Knock on wood. And I understand that some people have very, very serious cases, but the vast majority of people who get COVID, and now nobody wants to get COVID, but the vast majority of people who get COVID don't die. But what the hospital system is saying is that unless you are vaccinated, you're not even going to be considered because we are concerned that somewhere down the line, after you get the, the transplant, if you're not vaccinated, you're more likely to get COVID. And if you're more likely to get COVID, you're more likely to die than somebody who's already been vaccinated. So if you're not vaccinated, you cannot be on the transplant list. Does this strike you as right? 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, like I say, there are... There are people with pre-existing conditions who get bumped down the list. I mean, let, let's let's talk about livers. If you have somebody who is a 75-year-old chronic alcoholic whose you know liver has been destroyed because of years and years of, of heavy drinking, well, there, there's a chance that you know they're going to look at it and they're going to say, okay, the, the probability of your transplant being successful, given your age, given your history, is less likely and less likely to be successful than the probability of giving a liver to a, you know a 24 year old person who you know doesn't drink or anything like that. But that's but that's based on on a pre existing health condition 
that makes some transplants more likely to succeed than others. In this case, it is purely and totally speculative. You know, if you get the transplant and you're, you get COVID later on and you're not vaccinated, you're more likely to get COVID, number one, and number two, you're more likely to have an adverse reaction, although not everybody dies. All right, does this strike you as fair? 855-616-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, but I, I am curious as to your reaction. We discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. One of our texters says, Jeff, isn't this called blackmail? Get the vaccine or no transplant? Well, I, I mean, I don't know about blackmail, but that, that's this is clearly designed to force people to get the vaccine, to get vaccinated when they might not otherwise do it. They're, because, yeah, you, you, you need a liver transplant, you need a kidney transplant. Boom. You know, yes, you, you need to get the vaccination. All right. Is that ethical? Does that sound right? Does this open the door for for other sorts of things as well? Um, because, like I say, my guess is there's a number of other probably pre-existing conditions that would argue um, against a particular transplant being successful. Your reaction. Let's start with Margaret. Hi, Margaret. You're on WTMJ. Hi. I think what you need to do is talk to a doctor because people who have a transplant need strong anti-rejection drugs. This puts them at very high risk for infection. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if somebody had a kidney transplant, they would be more susceptible Mm -hmm. to COVID. COVID hits the kidneys or can Mm -hmm. hit the kidneys bad. So that person is less likely to survive COVID. Yeah. No, I think that I think I don't know why we need to talk to a doctor. I think that's what I was just saying earlier. Right. That's what the hospital's justification is. I guess the question, though, is, is that a reason to not give the person a transplant? Yes, I think it is, because you want the person who is most likely to be successful, even though what about what? what, Let's take it to the logical conclusion. What about people with pre-existing problems that make the transplant less likely to succeed age weight things like that should should they go to the bottom of the list or not get it i believe that is already in the algorithm yeah. you want the person that's most likely to to succeed with it okay thanks so for calling no i appreciate okay thanks for calling 8556161620 well i don't know that that's I don't know right now that we're saying that people, for example, who have kidney disease that are overweight um, aren't aren't going to get the transplant or that, you know, we have people that, um, you know, have, you know, underlying issues with, say, cirrhosis due to alcohol, that, that, that they're never going to be able to get it. I mean, what's interesting here, and I understand the point, and, and Margaret is absolutely right, if you are, if you are, for example, if, if, because of because of the because of the drugs that you have to take afterwards, you're more susceptible to an infection. And yes, I think it, it's unquestionably true. The numbers show that if you're somebody who's had the transplant and you get COVID, you're you're more likely to have an issue. So they're looking for people who are less likely to get it. But is it fair, I guess, to assume that hey, you're you're going to get COVID? It's not like you have COVID in the first place. Let's talk to Chris. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, Jeff, how are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? 
Well, I, I go back to what your previous caller said. I'm uh, actually an emergency physician, and when they're doing transplants, they're looking for the best success that they can get. And unfortunately, someone's COVID vaccination status may potentially play into that decision, mm-hmm. along with other things, including their health, mm-hmm. uh, other underlying conditions, etc. Do you think they should? Now, this hospital in Colorado is saying it's not a factor that plays into the decision. It is a defining factor. If you are not vaccinated, you're not on the list, period. That's a decision that they have made as an institution on to how they're going to do their transplants. Right. You know, like, yes, each individual uh, transplant center would have to make that decision for themselves. But that's something that they have factored into their decision-making process. Yeah, and, and you're correct there. I mean, thanks for the call, um, Doctor. The, the United Network for Organ Sharing, which is the national network that coordinates organ donations, they do not set requirements like this for removing or including people on the transplant list. The, these decisions are made by local health groups. And this one in Colorado has made that decision that if you're not vaccinated, you're not getting the kidney transplant. Back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Annex Wealth Management is a proud sponsor of Brew October. It's time to know the difference. If you're ready to put things in order, so are they. Annex Wealth Management provides investment, retirement, tax, and estate planning as a local independent partner. Head to AnnexWealth.com and click the Get Started button. Very, very cool. All right. Let me ask you an open-ended question. Um, And and that's – it's one of the things that that we all wrestle with. Right now – Going on in Washington, we have this massive gridlock, and you have you know, Joe Biden, who's pretty much, at least at this point in time, capitulated to the, the hard left wing of the Democrat Party, and, and we're trying to look at the, these massive government spending programs and sort of like something along the lines of uh, the, the New Deal from FDR or the Great Society from Lyndon Johnson, and let's spend trillions and trillions of dollars, and let's reshape the, the way government views things, and let's provide money to people who you know are, are less fortunate, and let's redistribute wealth and all that. And one of the big debates is, like, like who gets it and, and who doesn't? I mean, for example, the, the question is, if you, I don't know, if if you your family makes two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, should the government really be paying for you know um, kindergarten for your three year old? You know, you know, if or or should you be expected to to make that payment? What what is the role of the government? And a lot of the arguments involve. Well, okay, we, what we need to do is we need to protect the middle class because the argument would be over the last X number of years, the middle class has been left behind. The middle class has not progressed like the upper class has. All right, so my question is, what in your mind, what, what, is, what is middle class and, and how do we define it? Now, it might not be fair to describe it as an income level. But at some point in time, for example, when you're talking about programs, you you have to have different cutoffs, presumably. So my question is, when you hear the term middle class, what does that mean to you? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, what, what what is middle class to you? 
um, income level? Is it wealth level? How how do you define it if we're trying to figure out how we benefit the middle class? What is middle class? 855-616-1620. That's the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, I'm just legitimately, when you hear the term middle class, because that gets thrown around a lot, we've got to protect the middle class. We have to do more for the middle class. I, I'm intrigued by the notion of of what what does the middle class mean? What what is middle class, and how do you define it? All right, eight five five six one six one six twenty. Let's start with Caleb and Mequon. Good afternoon. Hey Jeff, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Sure, thanks for calling. Listen, I grew up in a hometown of uh, Brookfield, Connecticut, originally, and the average household income is one hundred one thousand dollars a household last year. So. Grew up in like this affluent, you know, well-to-do area for 18 years, and then I came out, and I'm on my own now in Wisconsin at 22. And I see middle class not so much as you know having the $600 a month car payment and paying $200 a month for cable, but just being able to live within your means, have a roof over your head, have food on the table, and not living off credit cards. You know, just being able to be independent. You know, you're not having those ridiculously nice things that society says you need, but you're not relying on the government or credit cards, per se. How about, like, a house and a car and, you know, a vacation once or twice a year? Is that is that part of being middle class, being able to afford that? Not Obviously, not necessarily talking about, a you know, a, a $200,000 Ferrari or something, but, you know, house, car, yeah, vacation. Yeah, yeah. Is that, that middle class? For sure. I, I mean, I subscribe to the, you know, all the necessary expenses need to be below 50% of your gross income for the year. Mm-hmm. So as long as you're able to afford a, a decent house, have a car that, you know, gets you to you and your wife safely to work, I consider that to be a win. You know, I'm not going to Bora Bora every year, but, you know, <laughs> right. taking a nice trip, you know, across the country is a good thing. Um, but I think people need to adjust their expectations a little bit and not live outside of their means. Well, that's interesting because you, you said, Caleb, you're 22. Is that did that, yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, okay. Would among your your peers, your friends, would you think that they would agree with you on on that, or is, is it, or would more people say, well, no, I I, I need more than that. I mean, that's I I, I got to have the house. I don't I don't care about. I, I've got to have the nice car. I've got to have the vacations. What about how would your peers react? Do you think? You know, I think they want those things, but it's another thing to actually work and go for them. I was listening to the channel earlier this morning on my drive in, and, you know, we had this labor shortage, and I think tons of people want to look rich by having the $1,000 phone, have the, you know, car on a lease payment of, you know, $400 a month, and have all these things that look nice and say I'm rich, but in reality, uh, they're not actually putting in the work and, and making it happen for themselves. So I think they want it, but they're not willing to work for it. Interesting perspective, Caleb. Thanks for joining us. Um, 22 years old. Um, it's, that's That actually calls like Caleb's are ones that kind of restore my faith in humanity. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Sam. What do you think? What's middle class? Well, let's go back to Act 10. What was all the screaming and hollering about? We got, you know, public employees that are going out on a pension in their mid-50s. A lot of these people are making six figures. They got full health care benefits. You got the whole package. And that was all. He said, well, that, that, these are middle-class jobs. Well, if that's a middle-class job and you're living in a given, given suburb and you can't retire at 
52, 53, 54, whatever, with, with a full pension and health care, then I guess the middle class is way behind here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that has to be part of the discussion here because the people in the public sector are relying on the other people in the neighborhoods to pay all these salaries. So if we're not getting that, then we got an issue there, right? Well, it'd be interesting. Thanks for calling. I guess I'm, I guess I'm looking for a simpler way of defining this because, it's again, this term gets thrown around, around a lot. Oh, we need to do more for for the middle class. Does it does it matter where you are? Our first caller, Caleb, for example, was talking about how he, he grew up in a well-to-do suburb of of Connecticut. Okay, well, is middle class in a well-to-do suburb of Connecticut is that different than middle class in Kenosha, for for example? Is it how do we measure this, especially if we're trying to figure out? how we develop programs that are designed to help the middle class if we feel that the middle class is is lagging behind. Uh, let's talk to Bill in Hartford. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for talking to me. Hi, Bill. I've got another way to figure this out here. We don't need to redefine what middle class is because that's a wide, wide, wide range. What we need to do is define what poor is. And I'll tell you what poor isn't. That's anybody sitting on the street corner with a cell phone. Okay. So if you got a cell phone, you're middle class if you got a cell phone. Okay. If there's like a family of two people and you got two cell phones, hey, you must be middle class because you shouldn't have uh, two cell phones if you're poor. So you figure that's so, you figure a cell phone something like a cell phone is a luxury. You damn right it is. <laughs> you're, you're, Four family members has got one. Bill, thank you. You're tough. I, I see. I'm not. I see. I wrestle with this. Now, I, let me just give you some some numbers to think about this. If you want to, if you want to look at, at household household income as as a way of defining that, and and I agree that that's not necessarily. It's more to it than that. But if you're trying to to figure out. Limits. If you're trying to say, for example, we want to help the middle class, and so we want to give you tax breaks, or we want to give you child care, or we want to provide, you know, government programs, we want to redistribute wealth. We want to take it from wealthier people, however you want to define that, and we want to give it to the middle class. Well, what one of the things that you have to start with is you have to start with income limits. You need some sort of objective measure of that. Now, in the most simple sense, um, the way it works is if if your median household income last year was between fifty thousand and one hundred and thirty five thousand, you are you would qualify as middle class. Just looking at it arithmetically. Now I understand there's some people that say, "What what do you mean, Wagner? You telling me that somebody can make one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars a year and still be classified as middle class?" And if you look at the numbers statistically, you know that would you know, that's where you would fall in with the median household income. Um, but, of course, you know, that doesn't necessarily take into account that the number of people, you know, in the house is, is it, you know, a husband and a wife, you know, who don't have kids who are making 135 grand. Is that different than a husband and a wife who have six kids, you know, and they're making 135 grand? And so you, you've got, you know, that that whole issue. They estimate for a three-person household, middle class is somewhat closer. It's between 51 and 153 grand. I think that's a tough sell, though, to say, you know, $153,000. Boy, you're, you're still part of the middle class. But again, part of that 
might be, again, where you live, middle class, 153,000 in Vail, Colorado, is probably different, goes less far than $150,000 in you know, um, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Again, you know, it's just, it, it's all those different variables. But I bring this up because I, I really think when we throw around these terms, let, let's, let's stick it to the wealthy. Okay. Let's, we, the wealthy has too much. So, you know, if you make X amount of dollars, you're wealthy. And, you know, we need to give it to people who are less fortunate. We need to give it to people in the middle class. Well, we got to know what that term is and, and how exactly we're going to define it. For me, I, I mean, it's it's tough with income levels. I, I think once you start getting to six figures, I, I think that, you know, clearly low six figures is probably what we would define objectively based on the math as middle class. But it's tough for me to say, okay, if you've got a family of two or three and you're pulling in $153,000, that necessarily means that we have to develop and put all these programs to provide you with assistance. Because I would argue that with a household income of one hundred fifty-three grand, you should be able to take care of a lot of these needs, and you don't need the government doing it. That's one of the big arguments that I've had all along with a lot of the stimulus spending and a lot of these programs that are designed in many shapes to, to help the, the less fortunate. And, and that's that's fine. If you want to target child care credits or you want to target you know these stimulus payments to people who are making thirty or $40,000 a year, that, that's fine. But why should it also be going to people who are making one hundred and thirty or $140,000 a year? Isn't it fair to say, okay, you're, you're, you're firmly in the middle class. You're in a position where you shouldn't need this extra help. You shouldn't need the income redistribution. Is it nice? Sure, everybody likes to get extra money. But whenever we hear these terms and whenever we're talking about this, for example, this $3.5 trillion massive government spending program that President Biden is pushing, you really got to look at the details and see who is the money going to. And, and yeah, if you make an argument saying, okay, it's got, we've got some people who are less fortunate and we want to help them out. We want to give them, you know, help them get them on the ladder to get out of poverty. That's fine. But my question is, okay, if you're pulling in 150 grand a year, do, are you really, do you need that money or should you be entitled to that money? So when you hear the term middle class thrown around, try to figure out what it means. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank is a great new partner, Kohler Services. Give them a call at 262-357-3300 or visit KohlerServicesWI.com to see all that they have to offer. From inspiration to installation, reimagine your bathing experience and contact Kohler Services for a free design consultation. Again, we're just thrilled to have Kohler Services as a new sponsor with us, a new partner on the program. You know, the more things change, the more they remain the same. We, we've talked about this a couple times before. The If you look up the word dysfunctional in the dictionary, you will see a picture of a guy named Tierman Spencer. Now, if you don't, if you aren't familiar with the name Tierman Spencer, well, it's because you haven't been following local Milwaukee politics, city of Milwaukee politics, because he is the city attorney. He was elected 
he defeated, overwhelmingly defeated, longtime city attorney Grant Langley in the election two years ago. And the interesting thing was that nobody had ever heard of this guy before. I mean, he, he had he had very little presence not like he came from the city attorney's office or anything like that. Um, he he sort of got elected in this, I would say, a hissy fit that voters had to kind of like throw in incumbents out. And and Grant Langley, who was a very very good city attorney, you know, maybe Grant should have retired a couple years ago. Uh, some people said his heart wasn't in to, to running again, but he ran a good, solid office. Chairman Spencer, I mean, his, his, his big claim to fame, I'm just going to be honest here, I mean, he's the He's African American, so he, he, that was, hey, I'm going to be the first black city attorney. Um, there were some issues, I guess, some controversy with the way the city attorney's office had handled a couple cases, including one involving a Bucks player. But, but, so he gets elected, and he has been a complete and total disaster. You have members of the city attorney's office, and you got to understand, people that go to work for the city attorney's office, it's a great gig, pays a lot of money, and, and you got people who are lifers, and they're just heading for the door. I mean, they're jumping off that ship like rats running off the sinking ship. They're, they're heading out. And the, the more stories that come out, there's employees who are filing harassment complaints against him. The story from last week that, that caught my attention, this happened last Friday, is a, a recently hired attorney that, that he hired had quit saying that the reason he quit was because the city attorney, Chairman Spencer, had come to him and instructed him to write a memo documenting the failings of a now-departed attorney who accused Spencer of sexual harassment. So in other words, this guy comes into the office, wants to work as a city attorney, and he's told one of his first assignments is, here's what I want you to do. Okay, I want you to trash one of your colleagues who had the temerity to accuse me of sexual harassment. And the guy says, look, he said, I, I'm not... I'm not going down this route. I mean, I, I'm a new attorney in this office, but, you know, I, I'm not going to be used for politically motivated, retaliatory, and inappropriate conduct. He said, I said no, then I objected, but I was ultimately ordered to complete the memo as a priority over the millions of dollars of cases I'm otherwise defending on behalf of the city. It's an intolerable abuse of power, and I will not be party to it. Well, if it was just an isolated situation, it would be fine, but this is the way that office runs, which once again demonstrates that you know, sometimes the voters get it wrong in a big way. And in this case, it's pretty clear that tossing out Grant Langley a couple of years ago in favor of the guy that's now running the city attorney's office was about as bad a decision collectively as voters could make. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. It is my very great pleasure to be joined right now by the senior senator from the state of Wisconsin, Senator Ron Johnson. Senator, good afternoon. Well, Jeff, I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. It's been a while since we've chatted. Um, A lot of stuff going on in Washington, D.C., huh? Uh, it's not a boring job, that's for sure. <laughs> that's it. Okay, Senator, l- let's start off. Uh, during our newscast, one of the leads was the, the issue with the debt ceiling and the president and the head of the Fed. Everybody's saying that unless something happens by October 18th, the world as we know it is pretty much going to end. What's, where, where does this stand, and what is your position on raising the debt ceiling? Well, that's just a lot of scaremongering. Uh, we have so much revenue flowing into the federal government that 
all you have to do is prioritize spending properly, make sure you don't default on your debt, make sure you, you pay the Social Security payments, that type of thing. And even if you don't raise the debt ceiling, uh, we shouldn't have a crisis. But the fact of the matter is Democrats have the complete power and capability of increasing debt ceiling without any Republican help whatsoever. They've been on notice literally now for months that it's their deficit spending. They're the ones that passed the $1.9 trillion partisan bill. They're the ones that passed Bernie's budget, you know, the $3.5 trillion bill. It's uh, more like $5.5 trillion. So if they, if they want to continue to spend so irresponsibly, they need to take the, the irresponsibly, they need to take the responsibility for increasing the debt ceiling to accommodate it. And so there's, there's no reason for a crisis here. Um, my guess is it'll, this will get resolved. Uh, but it should get resolved by by Democrats. This is their spending. Well, yeah, that that was interest. That was an interesting point, Senator, because and we'll talk about the three point five trillion dollar spending bill in just a minute. But the Democrats are trying to pass that through the process of reconciliation. They don't think that they need any Republicans to vote for that. Uh, the, the debt ceiling, which is clearly a budgetary matter, I they, they could pass that if they wanted to, right? Yes. They, they, again. They've demonstrated they can do this. They can the one point nine trillion dollar partisan bill. By the way, seven hundred billion of that isn't even spent till twenty twenty two and beyond. Clearly not COVID relief, uh, new entitlements, which is what this three point five trillion dollar Bernie budget would be as well. So they have the capability, and we put them on notice. I mean, Leader McConnell did. I uh, drafted the letter that forty six Republican senators signed in early August, saying this is your spending. You you need to raise the debt, so we don't expect any help from us. Now let's talk about what you were describing is the Bernie bill, the Bernie Sanders bill, the, the three point five trillion dollar stimulus plan, quote unquote stimulus plan. Um, it, it, it seems bogged down. There, there are short a couple Democrat votes. What is going on with that, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, the the real radicals, the, the Bernies and the AOCs of the world, don't think three point five trillion uh, is enough spending. They want five or six trillion, so they think they've, you know, compromised enough. Joe Manchin is saying uh, one and a half trillion is all he's going to agree to. I think Kirsten Sinema is somewhat similar. So right now we have gridlock with Democrats, and Jeff. Oftentimes, gridlock is by far the best uh, state of affairs here in Washington D.C. If it's gridlock between Democrats, it is guaranteed the best state of affairs. So uh, they'll have to sort that out themselves. Are there? Are there certain things in the $3.5 trillion spending program that you find especially objectionable? Well, again, we don't know all the details yet, but uh, so much the, the Green New Deal, we're creating new entitlements um, that aren't, aren't mean tested. And the way they're getting the $3.5 trillion score, by the way, is they're only they're saying these things are going to sunset in a few years. And as Ronald Reagan said, the closest thing to eternal life on this earth is government program, and Democrats know that as well. That's why my McGinnis' group has scored this more like 5 to $5.5 trillion over 10 years. And if you take a look at the unfunded liability going into infinity, it's a much larger bill than that. So no, this helps cement in place uh, America's path down a socialist uh, government. And that's what Democrats want. That's certainly what Bernie Sanders and AOC wants. That's what uh, hopefully Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin can hold off uh, given that victory. Senator, one of the things I find interesting about this, as, as somebody who views himself somewhat as a student of political history, when you when we look back historically at at a lot of the major spending, let let's reshape government times. You know, the, the New Deal under FDR, um, you, under the 
under you know LBJ, the Great Society, even Obamacare under, under President Obama, you had situations where there was a huge majority. Democrats in all those cases had you know, 60 votes or, or whatever in the Senate, lots more in the House. In this case, we have a very, very divided country, you know, 50, 50 Republican senators, 50 Democrat senators, a very narrow uh, majority in the House. Are you surprised that people are trying to push through these massive changes without really a mandate as far as at least the number of elected office holders? Well, it's shocking, but it's not surprising. Uh, Democrats are relentless. Uh, they're more than willing to uh, lose the majority if they can cement in place these progressive programs. And, and that's really uh, I think what their ideas are, they, they've got, what, did you say three-vote three, uh, margin in the House, yeah. even, evenly split Senate? And, and you're right, in the past, the Great Society, the, the New Deal, those were massive majorities. So those, those are what could really be claimed as mandates. There's more, little, no mandate here. The only mandate here really was about unifying and healing this nation, and President Biden has done the exact opposite. Uh, the most recent example are these incredibly divisive uh, uh, vaccine mandates that are going, going to really weaken our military readiness and do a great deal of harm to our health care system. Senator, if, well, well, let me circle back to that in a minute. But I, I do, the, the other, the, in addition to the, what I'm calling the $3.5 trillion spending bill that you, you say is probably going to be more. I guess one of the things that surprised me is there does appear to be the votes to get the $1 trillion uh, traditional infrastructure spending bill passed. And my understanding was one of the promises that the Senate, that the president made to moderates to get them to sign on is, hey, we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to pass this bill. And now it's being held hostage by the much larger non-traditional infrastructure spending. Are, are you surprised at that? And what's going on? And what's, what's the future of that bill? No, I, I would recommend not trusting Democrats in, in office, and you know, so to the extent that Democrats trust the Democrats, they probably shouldn't have. Uh, but that, that is one of the holdups. Uh, I am not opposed to infrastructure, by the way. I always thought the Republican position should have been taking that $700 billion that is from the $1.9 trillion partisan COVID relief package, not even spent till beyond 2022, and repurpose that for infrastructure. That'd be $700 billion of prioritized the spending and, and call it a day. Uh, we wouldn't further mortgage our kids' future, but unfortunately, uh, the bipartisan bill adds another quarter of a trillion dollars to our debt. That's uh, one of the reasons I voted against it, um, the main reason I voted against it. Uh, but again, in Washington, D.C., quarter of a trillion dollars, that's, that's like not even pocket change anymore, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> um, wonderful. Uh, so let, let's talk. You, you mentioned the vaccine mandates. Clearly, President Biden is frustrated that he has not been able to get more people to get voluntarily vaccinated. And so I, I think tomorrow he's supposed to be announcing some some new rules and all to try to essentially use all the leverage that the federal government can have to force private employers to force their employees to essentially get uh, vaccinated. What do you think of all that? Well, I'm completely opposed to mandates. Uh, one of the main reasons is there's no reason for them. But when we now know, the science tells us that even if you're fully vaccinated, you can become infected with COVID, you can transmit COVID. So why, why segregate our society? Um, it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Well, of course, the I mean, the argument, though, Senator, would be that if 
even though you can have breakthrough, you do have breakthrough cases. There's no question about that. But most of the science does tend to say that if somebody is one of those breakthrough cases, they're less likely to they're less likely to die. They're less likely to need to be hospitalized. So, I mean, isn't that an argument for encouraging people to get vaccinated? Well, that would be their individual choice to take a look at that. And you're right. It looks like vaccines reduce severity of symptoms and reduce probability of death. But it doesn't necessarily reduce the transmissibility of it. If you're walking around with less symptoms, chances are you're walking around. And we are seeing number of studies showing you're carrying a much higher viral load with Delta. Maybe maybe you're even more transmissible with with uh, uh, the vaccine. Now you can't talk about these things because you know there's there's only one narrative, and it comes from the COVID gods. But you know the, the other thing the COVID gods are completely ignoring is what people do look at, particularly nurses who are treating vaccine injuries is what the VAERS report is telling us. I think the maximum number of flu deaths on VAERS over the last, since 2000, I think it's 103. In less than a year, we've had 16,000 deaths reported on VAERS. Now, I realize it doesn't prove causation, but 5,200 of those deaths occurred on days 0, 1, and 2. And because I've been the tip of the spear of early treatment, you know, t- pushing back on these mandates, I am getting you know, just inundated with anecdotal examples of people tragically dying, uh, neurological industry injuries, uh, uh, paralysis. And this is something the CDC, the, the FDA, are completely ignoring. They, they counted the Bayer system in October saying, hey, you know, we're going to pay attention to adverse events. We see somebody lose a couple of days of work because of an adverse event. We're going to have a representative on the phone calling, calling them. They're not even following up with families of people that have died that are reported on VAERS. They're, they're not looking at this at all. Uh, so, again, it's not it's not irrational for people, particularly nurses, who already had COVID. They had the courage and compassion. They're heroes. They've treated patients. They caught COVID. Some tragically died. Most didn't. Many now are treating vaccine injuries. They're not going to get the, the COVID vaccine. They will lose their job, and our health care system will be weakened. Well, yeah, that that was I, – I was raising that point a week or two ago. I saw the new governor of New York had said – that if, if they lose 5 or 10% of the nurses or whatever that is as a result of their mandate, her, her point was that nurses were replaceable. And I did think it was interesting, where, where are the replacements going to come from? I mean, it's, it's not like you can just go down to the local hardware store and hire a bunch of registered nurses. That is such an ignorant statement. You know who you're going to lose first? You're going to lose the baby boom nurses that have 30, 40 years' worth of experience. And, you know, listen, we have to value nurses. They are heroes. But we have to understand their unbelievable levels of training in some of these specialties. You, you can't replace a nurse who's been specializing in a particular illness or a particular uh, surgical field for 20 or 30 years with, with a new recruit. It's impossible to. You know, I held a roundtable with, with nurses and doctors last Monday, and you know, I, I heard the, the people needlessly dying today because we don't we, we don't have people to care for them, that they are dying when they shouldn't have to. And that's today. They're, they paint a very dire situation of staffing levels today, much less what we're going to see in, you know, in a month or two if these mandates literally do get pressed, you know, pushed through and people start getting fired in droves. Mm-hmm. Senator, um, Facebook has been in the news a lot lately, and there's some hearings yesterday, I know. Um, do, do we need tougher laws on, on big tech? We need to do something about their their amassing of, of additional power. Um, again, we always need to be careful that whatever we do doesn't 
create even greater censorship of conservative thought. I think that's what the, the hearing this week in, in the Senate was all about, is a whistleblower, you know, all for censoring conservative thought, you know, conservative misinformation. Uh, so we need to be very careful about that. Yeah, I've always thought we need to reduce the 230 liability protection when it comes to these uh, social media companies deplatforming uh, companies. They need to be very transport transparent in terms of what their moderation policies are, their censoring policies are, and they ought to be uh, held accountable. That there ought to be a cause of action against them if they violate their own policies. But I think you need to be very careful about the 230 liability protection on content because they'll just use that as, as an excuse to completely eliminate conservative thought on social media. Senator, I, whenever we, we cannot conclude a, a conversation that you and I have without me kind of looking looking into the the future. Um, you are your your term ends next year. It is still an open question as to whether you're going to run for reelection. I I say on my program all the time that you I think of any senator in the U.S. Senate, you probably have the biggest target on your back for a variety of reasons. Especially since if you were to run for reelection, it would be in a a state that uh, Joe Biden carried in, in 2020. So um, a- any idea about when we're going to hear whether you're in or out for 2022? There's still plenty of time. Uh, you know, I don't get the sense, Jeff, as I travel around Wisconsin, that people are just, they cannot wait for a U.S. Senate campaign to start up. Uh, the, these campaigns are too long. They spend way too much money. I'm doing everybody a favor. Uh, just biding my time and seeing what happens and, and making my decision. Okay, so no no time frame as of yet. It's not like you've decided that by you'll announce by Christmas or by next spring or whatever. No no definite time time timetable as of yet. No, I can assure your listeners I'll do everything I can to make sure that uh, we have as the best chance possible to retain this Senate seat in Republican hands. We, we we cannot allow Democrats to retain power in the Senate or in the House. They, they are putting our nation on a disastrous path, and you know, that, that's my number one priority. U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, thanks so much for spending some time with me this afternoon. I very much appreciate it. Stay well. Uh, you as well. That's uh, Senator Ron Johnson. Um, it's been a while since we had, had checked in, and um, I'm, I'm intrigued by, the again, a, a number of the fiscal issues. And I, I understand that uh, Senator Johnson is controversial and not towing the line about vaccinations and things like that, which in part has, you know, contributed to some of the controversy that's there. But I always like to give him an opportunity to explain his position on different issues. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. You know, for the last several years, you've heard the word gerrymander thrown around and and the the idea of gerrymandering is a political party rewriting electoral districts you know and changing the boundaries of the district in order to gain an advantage and you know the argument is well in in wisconsin you know that the districts are gerrymandered to give republicans an advantage in illinois they're gerrymandered to give democrats uh, an advantage it's really interesting that now that after the new census that the district lines have to be with redrawn it's really interesting to see how difficult this process is see here here's the big problem in wisconsin that democrats face and that is that geographically the majority of the state is republican leaning that's just the the reality Large, even though the state is, let's, let's say it's split 50-50 Republican-Democrat, let's say it's 52-48 Democrat, whatever that is. The, the problem is that the vast majority of Democrats in the state 
cluster. They, they live in Madison. They live in Dane County. They live in, in Milwaukee. So you have geographic areas. You know, you, you have, well, look, look at Madison. I mean, out in Madison, what do you, what do you say? It's probably nine out of 10 people are voting Democrat. All right. Well, so here's the problem though. Well, what do you do when you're trying to draw electoral districts? Do you break up neighborhoods? Do you say that we're, we're obsessed? We want to get more Democrats voting in more Republican areas. So let's draw these weird lines where we like run, I don't know, a district, a Senate district or an assembly district. We run it from downtown Madison out 50 miles, you know, because we want to try to, we want to put more Democrats in some of these districts that are otherwise Republican leaning. And of course, that's one of the overriding issues that's there. How do you redraw these districts? The big problem in Wisconsin when it comes to gerrymandering, again, is that from the perspective of Democrats, if it's a problem, you've got everybody who lives in a couple big areas, in a couple areas, Milwaukee and Dane County, and not enough that live in the rest of the state. And there's really no way that you can deal with that. So Governor Evers has this commission. They've come out. They're trying to redraw lines. And you've got all sorts of people that are already screaming, including members of the Milwaukee County Board, who are looking at Evers' plan. And they're saying what Evers' plan is doing in an effort to try to, I don't know, spread out Democrat votes, what he's doing is he's he's changing neighborhoods and and he's diluting the minority vote. You know, he's he's taking districts that would otherwise be majority Hispanic or majority black, and he's he's diluting them because he's trying to figure out ways to well, let's get more Democrats into otherwise Republican districts. You do that, and that's clearly a violation of the Voting Rights Act. So I, I'm I'm kind of looking at this gerrymandering thing and saying, well, look, the bottom line of all this is if. If more Democrats decided they wanted to move into Waukesha or they wanted to move into Ozaukee or move into the Fox Valley, all right, then the problem would go away automatically instead of trying to do it artificially. When we come back, let's find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.